Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the reading of the Louisville Courier Journal for Monday, December 18th, 2023. Your reader today is Bill Sally. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for those who are blind or for those who have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. We'll begin today's reading by first reviewing the 11 First Alert Storm Team on your side most accurate weather forecast. The 11 First Alert Storm Team is made up of Ben Pine, Colleen Peterson, Sam Gabrielli, Alden German, Christina San Juan, Reed Yaden, and Matt Rudkin. And here is their local forecast. Low clouds and windy Monday with a shower in places. Tuesday, plenty of sunshine but chilly. Wednesday, partly sunny. Thursday, sun and areas of low clouds. Friday, cloudy. Saturday, mild with considerable cloudiness and occasional rain in the afternoon. Today, The high forecast is 42 degrees with windy conditions. It'll be cooler with a shower to be expected. Tonight, low of 24, breezy early, cold later. Tomorrow, Tuesday, there will be plenty of sunshine, but chilly. The highest forecast to be 40 degrees and the low temperature, 27 degrees. On Wednesday, the high is forecast to be 49 degrees under partly sunny skies. And the low that night, 34 degrees. On Thursday, there will be sun in areas of low clouds with a high of 54 degrees and a low of 42 degrees. On Friday, it'll be cloudy, another high of 54 degrees and a low temperature forecast at 44 degrees. And then Saturday, a little afternoon rain can be expected with a high of 57 degrees and a low of 44 degrees. In the weather almanac in Louisville as of Friday, The high temperature that day was 60 degrees. The low was 31 degrees. Our normal high is 47. Our normal low, 32. The record high of 73 degrees was set in 1984. The record low of 7 below zero was set in 1901. There was no precipitation measured on Friday, leaving our month-to-date precipitation at 0.91 inches. Our normal month-to-date precipitation is 2.05 inches. Our year-to-date is 40.14 inches, and our normal year-to-date is 46.24 inches. In the sun and moon cycles, today, sunrise was at 7.54 a.m. You can expect sunset at 5.25 p.m. Moonrise will be at 12.28 p.m., moonset at 11.57 p.m. Tomorrow, Tuesday, sunrise will again be at 7.54 a.m., sunset at 5.25 p.m. Moonrise will be at 12.54 p.m., and there will not be a moon set tomorrow. The first half moon will be visible tomorrow on December 19th, the next full moon the day after Christmas on the 26th, the last half moon visible on January 3rd, and the next new moon on January 11th. Now it's time for weather history. 
Wind-driven lake effect snow accumulated to two feet in northwestern Pennsylvania on December 18, 1981. In 1984, this date seemed more like its April counterpart, with temperatures in the 60s in Pennsylvania. And finally, we have a weather trivia question today. It is entitled, What season is starting in the Southern Hemisphere? The answer is summer. Now, the first article on the front page of today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal is entitled, Courier-Journal Investigation, A Heavy Burden, Part 2. Real estate groups take aim at lead paint law. Efforts made to weaken strict ordinance, citing concerns over implementation and impact on affordable housing. This article is written by Eleanor McCready and Connor Griffin, both of the Louisville Courier-Journal. And there is an editor's note associated with this story. It reads, This is part two of A Heavy Burden, a five-part investigation into Louisville's ongoing problem with childhood exposure to lead paint. What is often thought to be a 20th century problem is still very real in 2023. Nearly 10,000 local children tested with high lead levels in their blood over the past two decades, and kids are still at risk today. A new law, still a year away from implementation, aims to right this wrong. And now the article. Real estate groups attempted to delay or weaken key elements of Louisville's landmark lead paint ordinance before and after Metro Council passed it unanimously, the Courier-Journal found. The Louisville Apartment Association, in November 2022, pushed to exempt rental owners from the ordinance unless a child tests with an elevated blood lead level, according to records obtained by the Courier-Journal. This would have maintained the city's status quo, which forces the city's youngest residents to act as de facto lead testers. Then, in recent months, the Kentuckiana Real Estate Investors Association approached multiple council members seeking a, quote, champion to help change or delay the law. KREIA represents hundreds of property owners and investors in the area. Their lobbyist, Will Carl, said it's not about what's in the ordinance, but instead, what's not in it. Quote, there's just a lot of questions on implementation, and we want to be absolutely in compliance with this, Carl told the Courier-Journal. We're not the slumlords. Our folks are held to a higher standard through our organization, and they want to comply. But we do need guidance and input on how things are going to be implemented and some of the challenges that we think are going to be there. During the months the Courier-Journal spent investigating the issue of lead paint and its lingering effect on Louisville children, KREIA shifted away from trying to delay or revise the ordinance, having received a lackluster response from council members. Quote, What I have found is that the council is going to be steadfast in keeping the ordinance as it is, Carl said. We don't think we can get it pushed back, and we don't think it's going to be amended at all. KREIA, though, is still hoping to be consulted as the city's Department of Public Health and Wellness develops more specific guidelines to carry out the ordinance. Counselors passed the ordinance on December 1, 2022, with the support of Advocates for Public Health and Children's Issues, though it included changes in the original language that added more flexibility for landlords. Quote, this ordinance has more exceptions than I would like, 
said then-Metro Council member Cassie Chambers Armstrong, now a state senator, during a November 2022 council meeting. I would like to help more children than I believe we will be able to with, the ordinance as it stands, with these very broad exemptions. But I'm really proud of us creating something that I believe will begin the process of helping Louisville children. But just weeks before the ordinance's final vote, the Louisville Apartment Association's lobbyist sought extreme exemptions that would gut the proactive element of the ordinance. Those exemptions would have removed key provisions to protect children from the permanent effects of lead exposure. Chambers Armstrong called this idea a, quote, non-starter in an email to her legislative aide and chose to move forward with the vote. It passed without this exemption. The ordinance will go into effect in December 2024. By this time, Louisville's lead remediation law will be nearly 20 years behind similar efforts in some other cities. Next, what will Louisville's lead ordinance do, and will it work? 45 years ago, an invisible neurotoxin began eating away at the brain of an 8-year-old girl in Louisville's West End. Quote, I remember her pain, said her sister, former Metro Councilwoman Angela Bowens, who watched her undergo days of excruciating treatment for lead poisoning in the hospital. Decades later, Bowens voted yes on Louisville's first proactive lead remediation ordinance. Quote, I understand the questions and the fear that's coming from the landlords, but by having firsthand experience with someone who has had lead poisoning, the side effects of lead poisoning are far greater than anything else, she said during a committee meeting last year in support of the ordinance. Louisville's ordinance is based on other successful laws, including one in Rochester, New York, a poster child for lead regulation. Two years after its 2006 implementation, Rochester's officials found a decline in lead poisoning cases by more than half. Louisville's ordinance will require rental housing owners to enter pre-1978 properties into a, quote, lead-safe housing registry which the Metro Department of Public Health and Wellness will manage. Properties will have to re-register every three years. That'll be huge, said Albert Algorin, the lead paint program coordinator for Rochester. Quote, a lot of municipalities tried to implement a lead program, but if you don't have the renewal registry program, it's very difficult to sustain. Part of the registration will require landlords to complete a lead hazard risk assessment with a state certified inspector. Landlords who will have lead in their units will need to remediate it no more than 60 days after its discovery unless, quote, good cause is given. Failure to comply could result in fines of up to $2,000 a day. Currently, the main reason a home is flagged is because a child tests with high lead levels. This ordinance would ideally find and remediate lead before it causes permanent damage to children's brains. It was this piece of the ordinance the Apartment Association sought to remove, the Courier-Journal found. J.D. Carey, the association's executive director, said he did not recall requesting this exemption. But the association's lobbyist pushed for this change in an email obtained by the Courier-Journal. Attached to the email was a letter with Carey's signature that referred to the suggested revisions and requested the ordinance be sent back to committee. Meanwhile, Kerry argued there are already federal guidelines in place to deal with lead paint and that the ordinance would have little effect. Quote, I wouldn't say that I'm okay with this ordinance or for this ordinance, he said. It's not needed. 
John Cullen, a former landlord who now runs a Louisville-based lead prevention company, said the ordinance provides a layer of local accountability that's been missing for decades. Quote, if LAA is as compliant and lead safe as they say, then they are a great poster child for the new ordinance, proving that compliance with lead safe practices is not as onerous as many in the real estate and contracting sectors claim, Cullen said. Ultimately, this exemption was not granted. Quote, other cities have made steps toward fixing this problem, said Chambers Armstrong. We know that these proactive inspection ordinances do cause blood lead levels and the number of kids testing positive to decrease, and they decrease faster than they do when you use other types of policy proposals. This really is what works. The ordinance applies only to rental units built before 1978, when lead paint was banned in the United States. The time constraints to have a lead inspection vary by the age of the property. Landlords face an accelerated timeline for compliance if testing reveals a child has an elevated lead level. The ordinance includes a broad range of exemptions that allowed landlords to comply, including if they have done significant renovation to a unit or if they have a maintenance person on site who has a current lead re renovation, repair, and painting certification. Quote, I was somewhat skeptical of this in the beginning, but Councilwoman Armstrong did yeoman's work in pulling this together, said Anthony Piagentini, Republican from the 19th District, at the December 2, 2022 Council meeting, where the ordinance passed. Quote, it ensures all voices are heard, and it contributes to the process. I still have some concerns about implementation. Next, looking for a champion. The Courier-Journal spoke to three newly elected council members who were approached by KREIA this fall about changing the ordinance. One of them was Councilman Andrew Owen, also the co-founder of a Louisville-based real estate firm. They wanted the ordinance to be revised, Owen said, and I said, I'm not going to be your guy. Owen read through the legislation after hearing Carl's worries. He said he didn't have any concerns, quote, at all, and, quote, hadn't heard one thing from others in the real estate sphere. When Cassie Chambers Armstrong is involved in something, you know that she's done her background work. She's been very diligent. She's included as many stakeholders as possible, he said. But Owen said implementation with any government endeavor should be monitored carefully. Everyone should have concerns about government enforcing things because we can't hire enough staff, he said. But this is going to be no worse than anything else. Carl also reached out to freshman council members Jennifer Chapel and Betsy Rue. Chapel's legislative aide, Amy Luckett, got the impression KREIA was looking for a, quote, champion to challenge the ordinance. Carl did not provide the counselors, nor the Courier-Journal, specific revisions to the legislation. Instead, he cited overall worries about the implementation. KREIA and myself 100% fully agree with the spirit of the law, he said. There is going to be no time where we want to put anyone at risk. So we're not here to be adversarial or to try to change that part of the law. Next, Louisville's shortage of affordable housing. Carl said his group is concerned the ordinance, quote, will eventually cause the affordable housing crisis to explode, basically. Louisville is short more than 58,000 units of affordable to low-income dwellings, according to a 2019 housing needs assessment, and Mayor Craig Greenberg has recently proposed ambitious measures to address the gap. Brian Gwynn, 
an assistant professor of epidemiology whose lead research contributed to Chamber Armstrong's ordinances, shares this worry. I'm very concerned that this might pull rental properties off the market in an already underdeveloped market for people, Gwynn said. Families, they live in a lead-contaminated environment, but it's better than being homeless. He is still firmly in support of the ordinance, though. I don't know how to address it other than what we're doing now, he said, but it is a concern, and Metro Council needs to keep their eyes and ears open about that concern. Quote, we do not want there to be any negative unintended consequences on the number of affordable housing units available in our community, as we're already facing a severe housing crisis, the letter reads. At the November 2022 Metro Council meeting, Chambers Armstrong said these worries have not materialized in other places with similar ordinances. We also know that of the many, many cities that have done things like this, we haven't seen a lot of these scary hypothetical things materialize, she said. So we haven't seen rocketing housing costs. We haven't seen housing units go off the market. We haven't seen huge costs to landlords. Next, there's going to be growing pains. Carl said he is also concerned there will be, quote, delays because of a lack of housing inspectors, a lack of enough labs to process the actual samples, and in turn, fees placed on landlords for factors out of their control. But Nick Hart, who leads the Public Health Department's Environmental Health Division, said anyone with a state-issued lead examination certification can complete the inspection. That responsibility will fall largely to the private market, not the government, he said. The city is holding free lead inspector certification courses and expects 30 people to complete the training by the end of the year. Hart's department received $1 million in federal American Rescue Plan funding to support ordinance implementation preparation, he said. Every tax dollar put into lead remediation and ordinances, like Louisville's, represents a return of at least $17, according to economic research from Pew. The Codes and Regulations Department, which will be responsible for enforcing alongside public health, plans to hire 17 additional staffers, according to Wesley Barber, a code enforcement manager. Quote, I've been doing this for 16 years, Barber said. I've been supervising our manager for nine of those, and I think we are more than capable of handling all that. And for landlords concerned about the pressure of complying with the new laws, Hart said it's not too early to start inspections. Nothing is keeping them from doing it right now, he said. They know it's going to be a requirement. The easiest way to identify lead hazards right now is to go out to one of the companies who employs risk assessors and do a risk assessment. Owen predicted KREIA is going to realize, quote, this is a molehill and not a mountain. I think they're afraid it's a mountain. Rochester landlords had a similar reaction when its ordinance first passed, Algorin said. Quote, there's going to be growing pains, Algorin warned. There's going to be lawsuits. We were sued left and right when this first happened. I don't think we lost them, but we were sued left and right. You have landlords going to the media. Quote, this is not feasible. This is not practical. Everything you could think of, they said, Algorin said. But as time went on, the numbers reflected that this was the right thing to do. But as the clock begins ticking on the one-year countdown until Louisville's ordinance takes effect, there is one group the law will not address, children who are already poisoned, often with life-altering consequences. More work needs to be done, said Julia Richardson, a long-serving pediatrician in Louisville's South End. Quote, I'm not knocking the lead ordinance, 
But when we say, oh, we got a lead ordinance, everything's fine, right? It's the same thing that happened in the 70s, she said. Oh, we stopped lead paint. Everything's fine. No, it's not. It's not fine. The next article from today's edition of the Courier-Journal is entitled, One Park Approved for TIF Financing. Metro Council OK's Plan Amid Housing Tweaks. This article is written by Lewis Albach of the Louisville Courier-Journal. A development pitched as a transformational project in Louisville is now in line to land millions of dollars in future tax revenue from the city. In a 17-7 vote, Louisville Metro Council members voted Thursday to approve a tax increment financing, TIF, plan for the proposed one-park commercial and residential plaza with a tweak to the plan to increase the amount of affordable housing. The proposed TIF calls for redirecting 80% of local tax revenue raised at the complex over the next 30 years to Jefferson Development Group, the project's developer, with a cap at just over $114 million. It's a big number, but the $554 million project's impact on a well-traveled Louisville block near Crescent Hill and the Highlands would be massive. One park calls for separate 18- and 10-story towers to be built on seven acres at the intersection of Lexington Road and Grinstead Drive, with plans for apartments, office space, and retail, along with a restaurant, grocery, and hotel. Next, a plan without consensus. A blueprint for the One Park Plaza was initially given the green light in 2019, with an additional approval earlier in 2023, after years of debate about its size and services. The plan, put forward in 2016, was scaled back throughout that process. The financing proposal, meanwhile, was first introduced to Metro Council in late November. It was sponsored by Council President Marcus Winkler, who pitched One Park as a, quote, transformative project for the city that needed some form of public investment to be built. The proposal, though, did not have the support of Metro Councilman Andrew Owen, who represents the district where one park would be built. Owen said he was not consulted by the city while the TIF was being put together, while Pat Malloy, Deputy Mayor of Economic Development, later apologized at a committee hearing and said it was unintentional. At Thursday's meeting, and in comments beforehand, Owen said he is in favor of the project but against public financing. He delivered that message at last week's Labor and Economic Development Committee meeting, telling its eight members the project had support among his constituents despite concerns when it was rolled out years ago. He added the area where its plan doesn't meet the qualifications for a TIF. The committee eventually voted to recommend the project for Metro Council approval on a 6-2 vote. Jefferson Development Group was also criticized by some in recent weeks for scaling back the amount of affordable housing apartments estimated by the city to be rented at about $1,200 per month, included in the proposal. Its attorneys had pledged in 2019 to set 10% of all One Park South units at affordable rates, but the initial ordinance cut that figure to 7%, with an option to reduce it to 5%, with a payment of about $1 million to Louisville's Affordable Housing Trust Fund. An amendment was approved ahead of Thursday's vote, though, to increase the amount of affordable housing in the complex, 10% of units in its southern portion and 5% of units in its northern section would qualify, and to cut the option to pay to reduce that rate. 
Next. What's next? Next on Jefferson Development Group's list is applying for state incentives. Hundreds of millions of dollars in state tax revenue could be set aside for the developer as well. A financial analysis from Commonwealth Economics, included in the ordinance, estimated an additional $218 million could eventually be sent back to Jefferson Development Group. Owner and CEO Kevin Kogan told city committee members last week that his team has already had early conversations with Kentucky's economic development team. Jim Parsons, an attorney who worked with the firm on the TIF, previously said the state tax incentive approval process would likely take about nine months. An email Friday morning from Jefferson Development Group CEO Erica Hodge on behalf of Kogan did not provide more details on the next steps, but said company officials are, quote, grateful for the support of the city, Mayor Craig Greenberg, the entire economic development team, and the full Metro Council. Metro Council members who voted against the TIF in Thursday's meeting included Owen, along with Tammy Hawkins, Democrat from District 1, Barbara Shanklin, Democrat from District 2, Ja'Cory Arthur, Independent from District 4, Donna Purvis, Democrat from District 5, Ben Reno, Weber, Democrat from District 8, and Jennifer Chappell, Democrat from District 15. The next article from the front page of today's edition is entitled, U.S. Sees Large Increase in Homelessness. Experts on Housing Blame Cost of Living and End of Pandemic Relief. This article is written by Claire Thornton of USA Today. Tens of thousands more people in the United States were homeless in 2023 compared with 2022, as high costs of living pushed some of the most vulnerable Americans into shelters and the streets. Homelessness shot up by more than 12% this year, reaching 653,104 people. The numbers represent the sharpest increase and largest unhoused population since the federal government began tallying totals in 2007, the U.S. Department of Urban Planning and Development said Friday. Last year, federal data showed 582,462 people experienced homelessness. The federal government calculates the number each year based on counts from local officials on a single night in January. The population of people experiencing unsheltered homelessness who are particularly at risk of violence and criminalization increased, as well as the number of people living in shelters. The data comes months after the federal government found the U.S. is facing growing rates of poverty and food insecurity. In 2022, the most recent year for which data is available, more than 12% of the nation was living below the poverty line. And nearly 13% said they didn't have enough to eat. The United States saw such a sharp increase this year because more people are becoming unhoused faster, according to Ann Oliva, CEO of the National Alliance to End Homelessness. More people are also becoming homeless for the first time, she said. That move from a housed situation to an unhoused situation is happening more quickly, and it's more direct, Oliva said. More folks are reporting, as they're showing up in the homeless services system, that they're coming directly from a lease. Unlike in years past, the spike in U.S. homelessness was driven by increases among all populations and demographics, HUD said Friday, including unhoused families with children and unhoused veterans. It's alarming, Oliva said. Next, what's behind the increase? 
The nation's unhoused population increased so sharply because people are becoming unhoused at a greater rate than people exit homelessness, HUD officials said Friday. In recent years, homeless service providers have been particularly strained, according to Oliva, because more people need help. And at the same time, it's been harder to get people housed because housing costs have increased. The cost of rent is outpacing our ability to get folks housed, she said. High housing costs continue to be a financial stressor for the poorest Americans. In recent years, more people in the U.S. are rent burdened, according to HUD, meaning they spend more than 30% or even 50% of their income on rent. In 2021 and 22, as millions of Americans struggled with high rents, increasing grocery bills, and other essential expenses, pandemic-era government financial assistance waned or ended, Oliva said. There's a pipeline of people who are deeply at risk, she said. Evictions nationwide have been steadily increasing since fall 2021, when the National Eviction Moratorium ended, according to Princeton University's Eviction Lab. In late 2022, emergency rental assistance from the federal government also stopped. From 2020 to 2022, the number of people who became homeless for the first time increased by 30%, according to HUD data. In a statement Friday, U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness Executive Director Jeff Olivet said pandemic-era protections prevented even more people from falling into homelessness in 2021 and 2022. This concludes the reading of the first half of the news from today's edition of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Your reader has been Bill Sally. Thank you for listening. And now, after just a short pause, we hope you'll rejoin us for more Courier-Journal news right here on Radio Eye.
Now to continue reading from the Courier Journal for December 18th, 2023, starting with the Metro section, your reader is Rick Christman. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Ron Anderson, age 82, from Cadiz. Harry Edward Baumgarten, Jr., 99, Owensboro. Steve Lane Bauer, 72, New Washington. Rose Cameron Brewer, 94, of Simpsonville. James Clemens, 98, Louisville. Roy Ron Goodwin, 64, Princeton. Barbara Griffiths, 88, Brooks. Tolbert Milbum, 84, Chaplin. Carolyn Ann Mulligan, 82, Owensboro. Farron Pace, 64, Glasgow. Brother Gary D. Pennington, 69, Cave City. Michael Dwayne Smith, 70, Louisville. James Earl Smitley, 73, Lexington. Cecil Stewart, Jr., 66, Louisville. Paul Wondrack, 65, Jeffersonville, Indiana. We will now begin the Metro section. Uh, first article is Money for Parks, Libraries, Redirected Amid Controversy. And this was written by Eleanor McCrary. The Louisville Metro Council approved the reallocation of American Rescue Plan money Thursday evening with a 21 to 1 vote. The move comes after the Ethics Commission found Councilman Anthony Plagenti in violation of six ethics rules. Plagentini sponsored legislation for a $40 million ARP grant for the Louisville Healthcare CEO Council, which then hired him as a consultant at $240,000 a year. Plangentini was vehemently denied wrongdoing, and Metro Council is set to weigh his removal from office likely in January. In October, Mayor Craig Greenberg announced that he ended the CEO Council's contract, freeing up those funds to be allocated to other projects. Now the new budgets have been approved. Nearly $20 million will be spent on building and developing a technology training center in the Russell neighborhood. It will offer finance coaching, burial, barrier removal services, and youth apprenticeship programs. Louisville Parks and Libraries will receive the remaining funds, while the Louisville Public Libraries was already slated to get $5 million in the original proposal. That amount was bumped up to $15 million. Nearly $10 million was put toward deferred parks maintenance projects. 
The proposal specifically referenced repairing or replacing HVAC systems, roofs, tennis courts, basketball courts, windows, and playgrounds, but the funding is not limited to just those projects. The administration and Metro Council had to move quickly to reallocate the funds, Greenberg said in October, because American Rescue Plan money must all be spent by December 31st, 2026. That's an incredibly tight deadline for any meaningful project, and that means we need projects that are shovel-ready right now, he said. The remaining $1 million will go to the CEO Council as reimbursement for money it had already spent. Ford to scale back F-150 Lightning production amid shift in EV market. Expert views timing with Tesla Cybertruck launch is a coincidence. And this article is written by Phoebe Wall Howard of the Detroit Free Press. Ford Motor Company said this week it plans to slash production of the F-150 Lightning pickup at the start of next year by 50% in response to slowing consumer demand for electric vehicles that the company noted during its third quarter earnings report. The decision to reduce Lightning output comes amid the high-profile launch and delivery of the Tesla Cybertruck. Ford's plan, however, reflects months of strategy pl planning to match output with demand. Ford spokesman Marty Gunsberg said in a statement he declined to provide additional comment or explanation. A memo recently sent from Ford to a supplier outlined a plan to go from a weekly run rate of about 3,200 trucks to about 1,600 trucks starting in January, according to Automotive News, which obtained the memo and first reported the cuts. Yet Ford executives have foreshadowed change in recent months. We feel very good right now, but the future is somewhat unpredictable and volatile. We'll have to see how the market plays out. We're seeing competition increase, Martin Janya, Chief Consumer Officer for Ford Model E, told reporters on August 1st, We are going to have to adjust with the market. We're looking at the U.S. and EVs are growing 40% or more in volume on year on year for the automotive industry. That's incredible growth. His remarks followed a six-week shutdown to expand production capabilities at the Rouge Electric Vehicles Center in Dearborn, as the company has was seeing a reported dip in demand for EVs industry-wide. Ford builds the best-selling truck in America with the F-Series vehicles and acknowledged that electric vehicle production will take a number of years to be profitable. Gas-powered vehicles offset billions in EV cost and generate profits for the automaker. Meanwhile, the company has reported growing demand for hybrid trucks among customers hesitant to switch to all-battery vehicles. In July, when Ford teased its 2024 F-150 pickup, CEO Jim Farley said the company planned to continue its commitment to gas-powered pickups and focus on hybrids. 
At the time, Farley dialed back the Ford forecast to produce 600,000 electric vehicles annually by 2024, not 2023. Ford sees customers buying hybrids instead. Ford spotlighted hybrids, which increase fuel efficiency for truck owners while allowing them to go to the gas pump in times of need rather than find a charging station to plug in. As automakers figure out how many EVs to build and what prices will work, Ford says it will work to tiptoe customers away from internal combustion engines into electrification. We believe the man for our internal combustion and our hybrid portfolio will be potentially longer and richer than most expected, Farley said in July. We made sure Ford is profitable as we move through this ICE to EV transition. F-150 not alone. The landscape for Ford and other automakers has changed dramatically. Ford revealed the Lightning in May 2021. By August 2021, Ford announced plans to double production to meet customer demand. In early 2022, the company shut down its reservation system to manage the overwhelming response. In the summer of 2023, Ford revealed plans to shift hundreds of workers from its Dearborn truck plant building gas-powered F-150s to the Lightning plant. Ford isn't the only Detroit automaker making adjustments to reflect the changing landscape. General Motors has launched its all-electric Chevrolet Silverado in small numbers this year. GM revealed its plans for the Silverado in 2021. In October, GM revealed it would delay significantly expanded production of all its electric Silverado and GMC Sierra to the late to late 2025. Cybertruck takes all the oxygen out of the room. Meanwhile, Tesla is dominating headlines in social media with its new Cybertruck. Yet many analysts don't see significant overlap with traditional pickup buyers. While the recent news about Cybertruck may have influenced Ford's plans for the Lightning, the two announcements were coincidental, Sam Floriani, Vice President of Global Vehicle Forecasting for Auto Forecast Solutions, told the Detroit Free Press, Few Cybertruck buyers are cross-shopping, and the Lightning, since they're targeting different crowds, Ford is responding to slowing growth in the EV market, while the Cybertruck has only to fill the demand for Tesla buyers looking for something unique. Tesla posted on X that the company was making sci-fi a reality in announcing its its upcoming deliveries. John McElroy, host of AutoLine After Hours webcast and podcast, said the Cybertruck can't be compared to the more traditional F-150 Lightning. Ford has got to react to the realities in the marketplace. It probably overshot what it thought was going to be able to sell when the EV euphoria was going on last year, he said. I don't see tri- Cybertruck so much different, so much as a threat 
to lightning as a threat to the automotive industry. The Cybertruck is such a revolutionary truck in so many ways, design, engineering, manufacturing. It represents a new way of doing vehicles in the automotive business. Using stainless steel panels eliminates the use of stamping shop and a paint shop for assembly. McElroy noted, which by the way can easily be 300 million to 500 million investment. Massively reducing the capital investment allows the break-even point to come further down while competitors struggle with more traditional production approaches. The list goes on and on, McElroy said. It helps remind Ford just how far behind it is. Ford is actively working to catch up. Catching up before 2028 is unlikely based on all that's required to design and build vehicles, he said. Ford executives have said they're currently identifying ways to cut production costs of the Lightning and Mustang Mach-E to be more competitive. Doug Field, formerly of Apple and Tesla, is now at Ford. Automakers are asking the Biden administration to ease up on new regulatory changes that could cost Detroit automakers billions as they work to transition to electric vehicles. EVs are not catching on, not as hot, hot as we thought, and they would be just than we would be just a year ago, McElroy said. Tesla investor wants Ford to succeed. Tesla investor Sawyer Merritt posted to his 587,000 followers on X, formerly known as Twitter, a part of me is sad about the news because, in my opinion, the more EV, EVs on the road, the better. Yes, this will probably help Tesla to some degree, but Ford selling as many F-50 Lightnings instead of ICE F-150s is important to the transition of a sustainable energy future. Ford Chief Financial Officer John Lawler said last month that Ford is not moving forward on electric plans but just matching capacity with demand. The, for, the company is changing tactics in how to best execute its strategy, he said. Being out front on hybrid production, specifically with the F-150, is generating significant revenues that will help Ford generate profits to pay for ongoing transition to electric vehicles. Our next article, People Fleeing Occupied Ukraine Through Dangerous Corridor. And this is by Hannah Archivola. Summy Ukraine. Whenever 32-year-old Anna is agitated, she senses the chilling touch of a gun barrel behind her brows between her brows, a haunting reminder of an encounter with a group of Russian soldiers on her street about a year ago. On that day, amid tears and screams, the, shoulders, the soldiers threatened to kill her and her husband, fired bullets on the ground between their feet, and then dragged her brother-in-law to an unknown location, apparently furious that he couldn't guide them to where they could find alcohol. Two weeks later, Anna's husband, who had been hospitalized previously because of heart problems, found his brother's body in the forest not far from the village where they lived in a Russian-occupied zone of Ukraine's southeastern Zaporzhenskaya region 
two weeks after that he died. His heart couldn't bear it, Anna said. Afraid, alone and afraid, Anna sank into depression. I don't know how I coped with it, she says, repeating the phrase over and over as tears run down her face. On November 2nd, 22nd, she finally fled her home, joining a trickle of refugees on the corridor, a 1.2-mile trek along a front line of the fighting that Ukrainians also refer as the Gray Zone, situated between the Belograd region of Russia and Ukraine's Sumy region. Since the war in Ukraine began, thousands of people have fled Russian-occupied areas over myriad routes. Now, nearly two years in, the corridor is their only option to cross directly into Ukraine. Allowed to move freely through Russian-controlled zones, most take buses to the corridor from homes throughout the country. Zaporinskia and Kyrgyzstan in the southwest, Donetsk and Lukansk in the northeast, and Crimea, the southern peninsula that Russia annexed in 2014. Once they get to the corridor, they must proceed on foot, traipsing through an open, treeless, no-man's land, the whir of artillery and the whine of drones from nearby battles echoing in their ears. They are warned before they go that no one will be able to guarantee their safety as they cross. Some travel with children or elderly parents. By the time they arrive in Sumi, they are exhausted, barely finding the strength to carry the few belongings they were able to grab before they fled and yet for many to remain in the occupied zone is not an option. Staying there is equal death for them, said Karinya Aristogi, director of the non-governmental organization Pluriton, which, has, which set up volunteer staff shelter in Sumi. They are struggling because of torture, kidnapping, killing. They simply cannot stay there. Civilians in occupied territories are detained for minor reasons such as speaking Ukrainian or simply for being a young man, according to the investigation the Associated Press conducted earlier this year. Thousands are being held without charge in Russian prisons and areas of the occupied territories. Ukraine's government estimates at least 10,000 civilians were de detained. On both sides of the corridor, refugees are subjected to rigorous searches and questioning. On the Russian side, some, especially men, are not allowed to cross. Many are afraid and agree to speak to the news media only on condition of anonymity. Anna declined to provide her last name for fear of repercussions against relatives who still live in the occupied area of her province. They don't consider us human, Anna said of the Russian soldiers. Also prompting many to flee are new laws forcing residents of occupied areas to acquire Russian citizenship. How Penn ended up at Epicenter of Clash over Anti-Semitism by Michael Collins and Phaedra Trethan of USA Today. Philadelphia, in the city of brotherly love, Gemma Levy sometimes doesn't feel safe. 
Levy decided to attend the University of Pennsylvania partly because of its long history of tolerance toward Jewish students like her. But with recent events, pro-Palestinian protests, University President Liz McGill's perplexing remarks about genocide and her subsequent resignation, the campus hasn't seemed all that tolerant. I felt super unsafe at times, Levy, a freshman cognitive science major from Brooklyn said, while hurrying to class along, with, along the tree-lined locust walk in the oldest part of the campus. It's a weird experience to feel that way. Philadelphia, known as the birthplace of the United States, is where the founding fathers met and debated the future of our new country. Founded on the principles of religious freedom, it's home to one of the largest Jewish populations in the country. The University of Pennsylvania, founded primarily by Benjamin Franklin and now regarded as one of the nation's premier schools of higher learning, kept its doors open to Jew uh, Jewish students when Harvard and other Ivy League colleges implemented quotas and other members measures to limit their enrollment or keep them out altogether. Today, though, Philadelphia and the university are, are, are in the epicenter of the clash over free speech and anti-Semitism, the Israel-Hamas war, and the right to feel safe and secure. We're a microcosm of society, said Michael Balaban, president and chief executive officer of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia. Anti-Semitism is a virus that mutates over time and is easily spread through the prevalence of social media, Bella Ban said. We see it online in vicious ways every single second of the day. Vile anti-Semitic messages. Anti-Semitism in Philadelphia has turned up online, on campus, and in the streets. In November, the university responded to what is described as vile anti-Semitic messages threatening violence against the Jewish community. Anti-Semitic emails were sent to a number of staffers and anti-Semitic language was projected into several campus buildings. The school said it planned to increase security across the campus, including at Penn Hillel, a Jewish student organization. Months later, an off-campus protest by pro-Palestinian demonstrators was widely condemned for targeting Jewish-owned falafel restaurant Gordy. Video posted on social media showed a large crowd gathered outside the restaurant chanting, Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the restaurant was singled out because its owner, Philadelphia-based Israeli chief, Michael Salmanoganov had raised more than $100,000 for an Israeli nonprofit that provided emergency relief services to Israeli soldiers after the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. The White House, Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, and others condemned the protesters' action, calling them anti-Semitic and reminiscent of a dark time in history. Troublesome testimony. McGill and the presidents of two other elite universities, Claudine Gay of Harvard and Sally Cornbluff of the Massachusetts of Technology, 
Ulrich had been under scrutiny over how their institutions had responded to a rise in anti-Semitism on their campuses when they agreed to testify before a Republican-led House congressional panel. Lawmakers lobbed a series of tough questions at the three college leaders who hedged when Representative Elsie Stefanik, Republican of New York, asked whether calls for genocide of Jews violated their school's code of conduct against bullying and harassment. Appearing to sense a trap, McGill and the other two presidents gave carefully worded responses that failed to directly answer the question. In one exchange, McGill asked those decisions context-dependent, but conceded that calls for genocide would be considered harassment if the speech turns into conduct. To some, the president's responses raised question about whether the schools would adequately protect Jewish students. The White House condemned their answers, donors threatened to withhold millions of dollars, and the House committee announced an investigation into the university's policies and disciplinary procedures. McGill tried to walk back her comments, but the damage was done. She resigned but will remain at the university as a tenured law professor. Scott Buck, chairman of the university's board of directors, also stepped down. Julie Platt, the trustee's interim chair, declined requests for an interview, but said in a statement after McGill's resignation that a leadership change at the university, university was necessary and appropriate. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for December 18, 2023. Your reader has been Rick Chrisman. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. If you would like further information on any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we will be glad to read the entire item for you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.